2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to follow along, as you see in the title, it's about false apostles. As you read through the New Testament, we find out there must have been some problems here in the early churches because of somewhere between 35 and 40 percent of the letters of Paul are dealing with false teachings. Uh, and most of these are written between late 40s and mid 60s, so in that 15-year time period, the churches were struggling. You know, you look today, we get false teachings too, but it uh, didn't take long after the crucifixion and the resurrection that uh, evil comes in and people distort the gospel and the apostles have to write these things to help us. So as we, we go through this, uh, we're going to see uh, some sarcasm. You don't think uh, you get that in the Bible, but you will see you get that quite a bit. And I find out that's one of my spiritual gifts. So really helps me out a lot. Uh, so the true gospel, we'll look at the verse six verses here. Uh, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I have betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. So you can see verse 1, it's, it's clearly sarcastic. God does that sometimes. This is Paul, obviously, but this Holy Spirit working through him. Probably the, the quintessential verse of sarcasm in, in, in all of the Bible is Job 38. If you remember, Job is a, a book of a, a man who was righteous before God, but because of divine reasons, uh, a lot of bad things happened to him. And for about 35 chapters, his... Uh, friends, and they're probably his friends, and they're trying, maybe not very successfully, to try to figure out why bad things are happening to this supposed good person. Um, and so it's an interesting read of these different guys doing this. God just is kind of silent through all of this. And then eventually he shows up in chapter 38, and, and this is what he says to Job, who's been kind of complaining, although staying faithful. Where were you when they laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. That's sarcasm, folks. Where was Job when, when God laid the foundation? He wasn't around. Neither were you. And what you go through and what God does, he just reveals his majesty of creation for the most part. And the whole idea of the sarcasm is, you know, who are you, Job, to question me, God, on the way I do things? Um, it's a very interesting uh, scripture. But in this case, we're getting sarcasm from the apostle and we're seeing based on them putting up with what they should have known better as false teaching so he even uses the word jealousy my translation has divine jealousy when you think of the word jealous do you think of that as a positive word or a negative word i can't hear you no <laughs> Negative, right? I mean, you hear that negative. I know that's, that's tough because since we're not Baptists, we don't have a lot of interaction, I know. But maybe we should try, try to do that a little bit more. But, the, but the, it, you know, most questions from up here are rhetorical. But, yeah, it's usually negative. If somebody says somebody's being jealous, that seems to be 
you know, negative, maybe even sinful. But there's this idea in the Old Testament, and you see Paul kind of applying it to himself. It's called divine jealousy. He, God says, I am a jealous God. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, it kind of comes on the heels of this when he's talking about the one husband and the wife, and we'll hit that in a little bit. But this is a positive term because it has the other's best interest in mind. God is jealous for his people because he knows if they don't follow him that they will end up in destruction. So obviously his jealousy, his wanting to have me, because think about it, what's he say? You will have no other gods before me. A negative way to say that is jealous. You know, but it's a good thing. Uh, it's not that he's, uh, you know, slinking around corners every time Israel is trying to have a drink with another god, uh, or however that works. It's not, this is not the jealousy we're talking about. It's, it's this caring so much about the person because you know what is good for them that you are not going to give up, and that's what God does for us. So then that's what Paul is doing here. I have a divine jealousy for you. He constructs this analogy of a husband and a wife, and you see this in, in Ephesians, and you see it in Revelations, this, this idea that the church is the bride of Christ. It's a metaphor. It's about relationship. In fact, Ephesians 25 starts off with husband and wife relationship, but what it really is about is about Christ and the church. Uh, and so the, 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 the metaphor is that the husband should act like Christ and the church should act like uh, you know, the people should, the woman should act like the church in that sense and, and give us an idea. But you have this in the Old Testament too as the Israelites or the Jews or the Hebrews being the bride of Yahweh. The, the whole book of Hosea is this way. You know, Hosea starts off with this true happening where this guy who, who ends up being a prophet has a woman who is, ends up going away from him and being unfaithful to him. Anybody, uh, and this is not rhetorical, but anybody remember what the woman's name was? Golly, you guys remembered. Oh, you have to be pretty old to remember Gomer, don't you? Anybody remember Gomer Pyle? I actually remember his brother Goober better, but who named these guys? <laughs> it's like, you know, you have the kid, and it's like, oh, it's baby Goober. I don't, I don't know. Different time, I guess, but... But Gomer in, in Hosea was actually fairly attractive. Um, I just can't get there. I'm sorry. <laughs> we got to change that name. But the idea was what happens at the end of, in the middle of chapter 3, and it's such a great picture. You've got this woman who was his wife, and, and I guess technically still is, but has been abused in every way possible. And she's on the slave block, and she's useless to that culture. And... Hosea goes back and buys her back, you know, redemption. And, all that. and then you go chapter four all the way through the rest of Hosea says, uses that analogy that I'm coming to buy you back, God says, even though you're actually worthless because you're such sinners. It eventually points to the cross. And then you pick that up with the bride of Christ. So when he says this, I betrothed you to one husband to present you to Christ. It's like one God, one faith. You know, this is the uh, one salvation. This is what we're talking about. So when Paul brought the Corinthian church into relationship with Christ through the gospel, they became metaphorically the bride of Christ, and that's where that comes in. And then verse 3, back to sarcasm. He goes back to the, the story we talked about, the account we talked to with the kids. He draws from the prophets of, I, of Hosea, and he, he speaks of the apostasy and goes way back to the very first sin. 
You know, and I know I said that to the kids, but I've always wondered, I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but I wonder if that was the first time they got tempted. I mean, I always thought it was. And, and I'm not going to the mat that it wasn't. But you wonder if, if this knockish had been in there trying to get them and eventually they just gave in. Maybe he tried, you know, maybe he tried to give them candy or something. And, or maybe he tried a different sin. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to the mat for that, but it's, the text allows it. But eventually they give in. You know, that's why Jesus is different than us. Jesus was tempted, but without sin. That's why we are tempted, and hopefully we do better as Christians, but we had sin. So you think about the idea of taking this sinning group of whether they're Corinthian Christians or Israel in, in Hosea's time, this analogy was appropriate in Hosea's time because what happened, in, and we see this in the life of Gomer, that she becomes a temple prostitute, which tells you a little bit about the worship services in pagan temples. This was pretty common back then. And you know what? It was really common in Corinth. The Corinthian temples uh, had prostitutes there. That was part of their worship. That was part of their immoral practices. And so this probably has even more meaning to the Corinthian Christians when they hear this Bride of Christ stuff uh, than it does to us. Um, we don't have any, do we, Denison? Pagan temples with fertility rites? Yeah, there's something to put on your prayer list to keep that away, right? Some people think it's bad now. It's like, well, maybe it is, but we ain't got that. That's probably good to some extent. And then in verse 4, we've got a different Jesus he's worried about, uh, following a different spirit, and preaching a different gospel. Uh, so what would be a different Jesus? I mean, I've heard this. This is out there. You know, you follow your Jesus, and I'll follow my Jesus. Does that look like when Jesus comes on the scene that he allows that? I mean, it just, it's interesting. I've, I've heard people say that. but So what, what's going on? Well, either, either you're subtracting from what Jesus taught, which is pretty much in vogue. You're adding to it or you're changing it. That's really your only three types. And you've got different types of religions out there or pseudo-Christian religions that do this. You know, subtracting from it. Well, what does that mean? Well, we've got some pseudo-Christian cults that say, yes, Jesus' death on the cross is necessary for our salvation, but it's not sufficient. So they're saying the cross doesn't do it all. In my opinion, they're saying when Jesus says it is finished on the cross, he was just kind of joking, maybe even sarcastic. Um, yeah, that, that's subtracting. It's essentially making Jesus less than he is. And what happens when we say, well, there's other ways to heaven, it's essentially saying Jesus is a liar. He said he was the only way. So you're subtracting from his old. Now, you can add to it, too, and it's just kind of the, f the, the flipping of the same coin. You follow Jesus all the way, but to really get saved, you've got to add your own works. That's out there a lot. That's a temptation for all of us, right? You know, Romans 12 tells us we're supposed to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And, and we're supposed to do that. But living a life that is obedient does not save you. You live a life of obedience because you're saved. And those are big difference. We don't see that, but it's huge. If we think that Jesus just gives us the opportunity to earn our salvation, that is not the gospel. But that's out there a lot. If you think every time you mess up, you fall off the salvation boat, 
That's not the gospel. And the only thing I would look for, and we've talked about this a lot, how do I know that I'm saved? Well, do you feel guilty when you sin? And do you have some desire to follow the obedient God? Are you trying to be obedient to Jesus? And I said, even if sometimes you feel like not to, well, pray that you would. You know, wouldn't it be great if the desires of Christ's heart is would be the desires of our heart? That should be a prayer you pray all the time. But again, if we have to work our way, add to the work of the cross, then Jesus isn't sufficient anymore. And that's not the Jesus that presents himself. And I'm sure that was a problem in Corinth. It's certainly a problem today. And of course, you could come up with a myriad of examples of changing, changing the idea. You know, I've heard it, you know. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then they say, but really he meant that he was a way, a truth, and a life. It's like, well, that's not what it says. Because the next line, no one comes to the Father except through me. If it was a, that second part doesn't make any sense. Uh, and again, people, I've heard people say, well, I don't know if I like that. And I'm like, okay. I don't know if I like it. It doesn't make any difference if I like it. You know, I'm sure Penn State fans didn't like it yesterday. It make a difference if you don't like it. I mean, I'm sure they were upset when the quarterback got injured or whatever. You know, that just, you know, reality is what we're looking for. Is it true that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? That's the main thing. And then he talks about a different spirit. Uh, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about the work of the Spirit of God. And it's only the Holy Spirit that can lead somebody to confess Jesus as Lord. He says, we know that when you were pagans... You were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. And again, the people in Corinth would understand this. Idolatry for first century Corinthian Christians was very real. You know, we have to turn it into something, which is fine. You have to contextualize it to your own. Because, you know, I don't know about you, but there's no shops uptown where we buy pagan idols, are there? Um, we have our own types of idolatry. Um, you know, like football could be. I mean, you know, not for me, but others. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God could ever say Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the spirit. They're not just talking about some sort of weird, you know, enunciation of a sentence. What they're talking about is that you can't really follow Jesus without the spirit changing your heart to do that. That's what he's trying to get across. So only the Holy Spirit could lead some person to Christ, which should in your discussions with other people about Jesus, it should be very freeing to think that. You can't lead somebody to Christ. I know that sounds weird because we say that. Well, I led this person. Well, if we say it that we said things and they believed, yeah, I agree with that. But what changed their heart? You can't change their heart. That's the Holy Spirit's job. It's just you need to be faithful to just give it a shot. And if you want to know how to do that, short commercial message, you can come to our Wednesday night class and tactically understand what it means to make disciples. It's very freeing when you go through something like that. So a different gospel would be any doctrine of salvation that was out of accord with Paul's message of justification by faith. We see this so much in Galatians and very early in Galatians. He says to the Galatian Christian, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, 
but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So same thing in Galatia as we're having in Corinth. There are other gospels out there. And then you go down to verse 5 and 6. He's back to sarcasm, um, mocking, and he calls them uh, super apostles. You can just imagine, he, you know, he's an apostle of Christ, but these are super apostles. Uh, so he's thinking that they're, they think they're better than he is. And we've got this. Just turn on the television sometime. Some of these stations, uh, probably won't mention them by name yet. But he, there's some bad stuff out there, folks. I mean, these self-appointed apostles, there's even a movement out there that people are saying that I'm, you know, this person say, I am an apostle, just as important as Paul and John and Peter. Um, we'll look at that later, but is that humble? <laughs> Doesn't sound too humble, does it? Uh, I would think you would always want to look for a little bit of that in a, in a, in a leader. Uh, usually it takes me about five minutes in the morning to be humbled, um, I know you hit your foot on the bed that's been there in the same place for three years. Uh, you know, you turn the water on in the shower and forget that the hot's not on. Um, gets humbled pretty quick, you know. It doesn't take long for God to humble us. But that, that you know, these when you're self-appointing yourself as an apostle, there's not a lot of humility there. Um, so now it's usually assumed that, that Paul was not an eloquent speaker because of verse 6 and verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 1. In 1 Corinthians 1, he said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied with power. And here he says, For I am unskilled in, even if I am unskilled in speaking. So a lot of people say, and, and I think it's okay, it might be right, that, uh, that Paul was not a very good speaker. Uh, but you know, I wonder if this is sarcastic, too. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just throwing that out, not trying to change what people think. But is it possible that Paul was a pretty good speaker, and they're just saying he's not to make it look bad? I don't know. I, I'm not going to go to the mat for it, but this is another thing to think about. Uh, the main part of that verse is that he knew the true gospel, and that's what makes a difference. So, but, you know, think about that. I wonder. I wonder how good. You ever thought, you know, we're going to do the Sermon on the Mount after we get done with Second Corinthians. Do you think Jesus was a good speaker? you think he stuttered? I, I, I mean, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I think Jesus was a pretty good speaker. Uh, you think about some of the movies that you've seen that Jesus is in it. Um, or there was the greatest story ever told. Uh, he's very good speaker there. Uh, the Jesus movie, the John movie. And, and they've got this new series out that we're probably going to do something with. Either, I don't know, I'm trying to think about how if I could do a sermon series or at least a Bible study on the chosen show of hands, which means you take your hand and you reach it into the air so I can actually see it. How many people have seen part of the chosen? All right, so about half of you. Um, not required, but if you get a chance, I would look at that. The Jesus, well, this is not rhetorical. What do you think about the Jesus in The Chosen? Good? Yeah, lovely accent. It's Palestinian, which would have been, well, you know, it's in English, uh, which helps. Um, I don't know if you knew that, but Jesus didn't speak English. Uh, but uh, but it's, I think it's really well done. 
But, you know, I do think Jesus was probably, he was definitely mesmerizing to people. Um, but not just because he, maybe he was an eloquent speaker. I think it's because of the content and maybe the person of Jesus, you know. But, uh, but what Paul is getting at here, I think, before we get to these next verses, is that just because somebody's eloquent doesn't mean that they're telling you the truth. Go back to the garden. You know, it seems like, I, here's another thing. I'm just throwing it out. These things come to me, and sometimes I have a mic, and it could get dangerous. But do you think this is the first conversation that Eve ever had and Adam had with this being? I don't know. I mean, if you want to make a case that it wasn't the first, she doesn't seem all that surprised. Now, I know not every woman's this way, but... If most women, if you went to, you came in and then you looked up in a tree and there was an anaconda, what would you say? Well, hi, how are you today? I mean, she doesn't seem frightened. Now, I certainly could be reading too much into the text and I'm not going to the map for this at all, but it is kind of interesting. It seems like they almost maybe, and you think about it, if Satan is good at what he's doing, developing maybe a little bit of connection of trust before you change things is kind of the way to do it, right? The salesman of the very bad car gets to know your family before he tries to spring it on you for way more than it's worth. Um, so I wonder, verses 7 through 11, Paul's service, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was indeed, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows that I do. So again, back to sarcasm. Someone in the church had mistaken Paul's refusal to take money as an indication that he considered himself inferior to others. The super apostles were well paid, apparently, for their efforts. And that does kind of go over into the TV stuff. Not all TV preachers are bad. I'm not saying that. But, and not all non-TV preachers, but some are. Again, just look at content. That's where you have to go. But Paul offered only free service in Corinth. What he's saying is that he did not take any money from the Corinthian Christians. He had the Macedonian Christians supply his, his salary, um, and so he asked, is this a sin to not take money from you? Is this, you know, has it been wrong for him to humble himself this way? Well, obviously, he wanted them to say, obviously, no, he's being more humble. These guys are not. And when he says, I robbed other churches, he's talking about, I got money from other churches to come to Corinth and preach the gospel. And then in verse 11, he hits it pretty hard that I do love you guys. That's why I'm doing this. It should always be what a preacher is doing because he loves the people and loves God. So, well, let's hit this last part because there's kind of some interesting things in here. Verses 12 through 15. And what I, what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would claim, like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So in verse 12, he's reasoning that not taking any wages from the Corinthian church at this time was to further show that these self-described apostles were imposters. I don't know if you think about, and you've got to be careful with this, and, and is there a line of how much a, a Christian leader should make and you're crossing over into something bad, you know? Some people have said if you have your own jet, that's too far. Um, a couple cars ago, I had a Jetta. It was kind of a nice car, actually. But, but I don't know. I mean, I, I guess people just have to use your own judgment. What are they using it for? Um, but what's the big idea here? It's not how much money do they make. It's not do they, are they humble enough. It's what are they teaching? That's what Paul's upset with. So he, he goes into verse 13 and calls them false apostles. So what's a true apostle? Wouldn't that be good to know? You know, how, you know, how many apostles were there, are there, should there be? That's a pretty good question, isn't it? Well, we started out with these guys called disciples that Jesus chose. You guys remember how many were there were at first? I didn't think this was that hard of a question, but 12, thank you. Um, you knew it had to be 3, 7, 12, or 40. That's always that way. Uh, so there's 12 apostles, but we did have a problem with one of them, uh, and his name was Judas. So we probably wouldn't call him an apostle, maybe a disciple, but never really an apostle or an apostle once removed or something like that. But we did get another one. You, I don't know. You might not know this guy. It's in Acts 1. You remember the guy that replaced him? Matthias, good job. So now we're to 12. Um, are there any more in the Bible? Paul, 13. Well, that messes everything up. Uh, that's not right. We've got to get up to 40. No, I'm just kidding. But possibly James, uh, the brother of Jesus, who is the head of the Jerusalem church. We see a lot of him in Acts and wrote the book that's called James. You guys are just doing really well here. You didn't know this would be this Baptist today, did you? I didn't either. It just kind of happens. The uh, Barnabas sometimes people say maybe. I, I don't know. But here's the criteria. Uh, we, so we know these 13, maybe 14 for sure. They had to be a witness to the resurrected Jesus. That was the criteria in Acts 1. So was Paul a witness to the resurrected Jesus? When did that happen? Well, we had that when we went through Acts the road to Damascus experience. So how many people today would qualify? I suppose, you know, and I'm not, I mean, what would happen if I came on a Sunday morning and say, hey, last night I was watching a football game and Jesus came and he brought kettle corn. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, <laughs> I mean hopefully it would be a little bit more zippy than that. Um, I suppose that could happen, uh, but you start thinking about that a little bit. What would be the problem? Is, what, what would be a possible? Maybe I had too much kettle corn before he came, uh, <laughs> and I had fell asleep, and I really was still asleep. You know, whatever. Um, this is the question you have to answer for yourself. I'll give you mine, and you don't have to follow um, what I say in this regard, uh, because I'm humble. I'm still waiting to get my shirt that says that, but... Are we to want more apostles after the first ones have died? Why or why not? 
Um, do we see anything in, in anywhere in the New Testament that the apostles other than Judas were replaced? No. Uh, I think you can make a pretty good So if we say we follow the teaching of the apostles, what does that mean? The New Testament. And is the New Testament sufficient for our salvation or do we need to add to it? I think you can make a pretty good case and if you have a different, you can, they, you can make the other case that this, we're done with apostles. We don't need, and these super apostles who call themselves apostles or the guys on TV that say they're apostles, you can call yourself whatever you want. You can call yourself a bunny rabbit. I don't care, but you're not an apostle like these guys. And you're probably not too humble either because all these apostles, you know, Paul, we've read about that. You know, everything went smoothly for him, right? He became an apostle, then everybody, you know, he got all the best their jets and he got, you know, everything just went well. I mean, we just had that a couple weeks ago, all these things that happened to him. We're going to get that again. He got beaten up all the time. Nobody liked him. You know, it was, it was not a good thing. And it seems like all these super apostles or the ones you have on television call themselves apostles also seem to be rich and, and have no worries about, because what are they telling people? They're telling people what they want to hear. And that, that might fill the, fill, the, fill the seats, but it's not what we should be doing. So the other thing that an apostle, a witness to the resurrected Jesus and commissioned by Jesus himself. Think of Peter. What did Jesus do? Comes up to him, follow me, follow me. And then Paul, as a one untimely born, as he says in, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he gets called directly by Jesus too. Was Paul looking for it? Was Paul looking for Jesus? Not at all. I don't know if Peter was either. I mean, we, maybe. But that's the two things, and nobody qualifies for this today. So that's why I would make the case. We don't have an apostle, and we never really have that in the Bible. What do we have? Pastors, elders, teachers. That's kind of what we do. So that is something to think through yourself, too. So if you see somebody as a self described apostle now, you might question and just ask him, use your tactics. Why do you think that you should be called an apostle? You notice I use a big A on the second line there. And a you know, apostle at its very core just means one who is sent out. That's all it means, you know. So if you're sitting in a meeting and somebody goes out to pick up a deli, that, that could be an apostle. Low A. But we're not talking about that here. We're talking about somebody commissioned and seeing the risen Lord. So these super apostles didn't qualify, but their deception was apparently successful. We, we just read that earlier, that they followed them soon enough. So true apostles, what, what would be the characteristics we see in the Bible? And we see this from the letters of John, Peter, Paul, James, if he was one. Humility, truth, and love. That's the things you'll always see. They're very, read First John. It's all about making sure the truth is out there. It's also about what it means to love God and love one another. And then humility. Uh, Paul sees that all the time. He, he, he talks about that. You know, the reason that John in his gospel calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved not be, was not because he was cocky. It was because he knew he was a sinner Took him a while to understand everything Jesus said, but yet Jesus still loved him. 
That's what that means. It's a humility thing, not a cocky thing. Well, what's a false apostle? Well, you'll see pride. You know, look at me. And I'm still, I'm going to get that shirt because I think it'd be fun. Don't you think that'd get some conversation started? I'm humble. Because you realize that's an oxymoron, right? You can't get that. All right. Do we have those shirts out there, the I'm humble ones? Maybe we can get that. I don't want the logo on there, though. I don't want anybody to know where that came from. But uh, So pride, lies, deceit, and abuse. And I'm not saying maybe physical abuse, but abuse the people by fleecing the flock, as they say. That's what you'll see. And sometimes it takes time. Well, then you have these disguised angels. No wonder, for even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. Ooh, what does that mean? So like their principal, the arch deceiver, they have the habit of masquerading as an angel of light. You know as well as I do, if you're not going to be tempted to sin if it's not tempting, right? I mean, y- y- you think about that. You're only tempted when it's something that's alluring. You go back to John 8. Jesus says to these people who aren't following him, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then work yourself back to Eden again. Notice how subtle he is. Did God really say, are you sure? You know, do you write that down for you? Are you sure he said that? You know who told Eve the commandment, as far as we know? Adam. Because that commandment comes before she's created. <laughs> now, God probably could have told her directly, I guess, but it seems like he told her. So he, he, I think he's kind of, this knockish is kind of saying, you sure Adam knew what he was talking about? You know, it's, it's very subtle. And when you look at this, it's most likely metaphoric here. The idea is this, this disguise and deception is what it's talking about. Um, you know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly or raven, ravenous wolves. Why do they wear the sheep's clothing? I've had wool on. It's fairly uncomfortable. I mean, they want to look like a sheep. And I, you know, I don't know what that knockish looked like, but is it possible here we're having all kinds of fun with the, I'm just screwing up Genesis 3 all over the place maybe. I mean, the picture Bible has him kind of looking like a, you know, a fairly attractive dragon, but uh, as dragons go. But I wonder if he appeared like an angel of light. Looked nice. They talked to him before maybe. Yeah, I don't know. But again, you think about it, how do we know? You know, because sometimes we take this verse and we, this could be literal, I suppose. Um, You know, I'm sure not praying this happens to you, but if tonight in your bedroom all of a sudden an an image appears that looks like an angel, how are you going to know which side it's coming from? (laughs) I don't know. Use your tactics. Ask some questions. Yeah. Maybe if they start off with fear not, you know you're all right. 
because it seems like that's what they always say. But I do think this is more metaphoric. The things in the world that end up having people following false teachers, false Jesuses, and false spirits are those subtle things that we start out well, we trust somebody in their teaching, and they get farther and farther away from the truth of the gospel, and we get taken in. And it's easy to do, and we have to be. That's why, yes, it's great to come to a church that has someone who knows the Bible that's teaching it and preaching, and many people who do, and we have that. But if you're not in it yourself, you can get duped really quick. Just be careful. We have the source material. It's kind of neat. And so did they. I mean, Adam knew this was right. And you know where Adam was? He's in the, in the comic. He's in the background. That's part of the problem. Whose job was it to tell the knockish to, you know, hey, you... Stay in your lane, dude. Get out of here. Adam should have spoke up. And you get to Romans 4 and 5 and 6. You know who's not mentioned in there? Eve's never mentioned. It was Adam's sin. I'm not saying Eve didn't mess up. That's not the point. But Adam was supposed to be there, and he didn't do it. So you guys think about that. If you're, That's part of what you're supposed to be doing. And, you know, and once in a while, it happens, I realize that the woman needs to speak up because the man's too, uh, can't use that word, ignorant. So they relied on disguise and deceit. That's what these, they're doing, carrying out their evil schemes, such as the corruption of the intellect and the diversion of people's true devotion from Christ to them or the world. We have that, right? If you believe in Jesus, you'll get everything you want. That's out there right now, isn't it? You'll never get sick. You'll always be successful. You'll, know how, you'll have friends be, be able to influence people, and it it's just doesn't fit the gospel. It doesn't mean, and don't do the, the anti-prosperity gospel either. It doesn't mean, oh, come to Jesus, and your life will be terrible the rest of the time. Come to Grace Church, and we'll make sure you're miserable until you die. That's not, that's not the gospel, is it? You know, that, the idea, yes, it's okay. Who was the richest guy in Ur was Abraham. It wasn't, it's not about riches and poverty. It's about what you do with it, folks. We had that earlier in chapters 9 and chapters 10. So what was false was not simply their claim to apostleship, but their message. And you get this a little bit later in Galatians 1. And I think this is interesting given the verse 14. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Paul was darn sure that he had the right gospel. So was Jesus. And you know, we have two major religions in our world that combat Christianity for truth. One's American and one's worldwide. Well, one started in America, it's worldwide also. And both got started by an angel who came and told the person who started it that what was out there already, including Christianity, was not right. Anybody want to guess what those two are? The, the Mormonism. An angel came to Joseph Smith and told him nothing that was there. And you read this verse, like, wow. The other one happened in a place in the, in the Middle East in the 600s, Islam. The angel Gabriel comes and tells uh, Muhammad about the Koran and that, you know, just interesting verse that this was written. We think Galatians is pretty early, maybe earlier than the Jerusalem Council, like late 40s. 
you know, 2,000 years ago, and this thing was telling us. So finish up verse 15. He's adding that their deceitfulness is not a surprise because Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. His people who following him are going to masquerade, and they might not even know it. That's what we have to be careful. Don't, there may be somebody teaching false doctrine because they think it's true. Those white-shirted young folks that come to your door, elder so-and-so, I haven't seen them. COVID kind of knocked that out, I guess. I think they really believe what they think is true. I mean, maybe not, but don't you want to give them, or if you're talking to a Muslim or a Buddhist, they believe what they believe is true. But if, and that's what you do in, in Mormonism, just ask them if they believe A and we believe not A, somebody's wrong. You know, if Jesus is the spirit child of, you know, with Lucifer and is just the God of this world and you could become a God of another world, then he's certainly not the Jesus that we're seeing in the Bible, right? Somebody's wrong here. And that you can be respectful when you, when you talk about that. But kind of ending up with this, Satan's attack on the church are seldom direct. I mean, if we were sitting here and some Satan appeared as a big old dragon spitting forth sulfur and tolabo me, we're not going to follow that. That's stupid. It wouldn't have worked in the garden. It's the subversive. It's carried out by those in the church who often misguidedly serve his ends because we're not following the truth of the gospel. And that's what Paul fears may happen in Corinth, and that's why he put it. So of those responsible, Paul says their end will correspond to their deeds, that eventually if they don't repent, that they'll get judgment and not grace, which is what the whole gospel is about. Let us pray. Father, as we uh, look into this text and we think about Satan appearing as an angel of light and the false teachings that can come into our century and back in that century, thank you so much for giving us a clear, easy to understand, available gospel. 27 bucks of the New Testament, 39 of the Old. May we want to be in it understand it, knowing that the better we know it, the better we know you, and the closer we'll get to you and each other. Amen.